This is a Burlington Free Press podcast. Welcome to Season 4 of It's the Beer Talking, where we discuss local beers, brews, barrels, and barley at Burlington, Vermont. Each week, we bring you news from our refrigerators with their segment, What's in the Fridge, as well as interviews from some of the biggest breweries around. Now here are your hosts, Jeff Baker and Jason Strempick. Oh, sorry about that, Jeff. Sorry. You jumped in the gun. <laughs> Did you just you know, come from the fridge? I got a little excited for this one. Um, out of the fridge. Uh, and w- by the way, welcome to the segment of It's the Beer Talking that I call What's in the Fridge. Jason Strempex, favorite <laughs> segment of the show. But I jumped the gun on this one because I saw the the lemon on the side, and uh, the, the, the tall boy that I just cracked was Narragansett's Dell's Shanty. And if you haven't had this one uh, going into the summer, then, uh, boy, do we get a surprise for you. I think we've actually – this might be a repeat going back to the early days of the podcast, but uh, for everybody that, for everybody, um, that doesn't know – Narragansett out of uh, Rhode Island, uh, Del Shandy is uh, arguably Rhode Island's most famous lemonade, uh, Dell's that is. Dell's, yeah. And then they uh, they blend it with uh, the Narragansett uh, infamous lager, and then uh, hence you have Del Shandy. And this takes me back when I was a kid to uh, Lemonheads. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that candy? Do do you remember that candy? Am I am I that old, Joel? Oh, not the band? Lemon. Not the, yeah. not the, <laughs> I like the Lemonheads, the band. Do you remember the candy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lemonheads candy. That's this. this there it is, yeah. yeah. Very I mean, refreshing. You, clearly, I mean, the second you open it, it's, it's just this beautiful perfume of, of lemon. I like that, Jeff. Perfume. Yeah, it's like, yes. and it's like juice. It's not bitter lemon peel. It's not zest. It's that nice juice from the... It's juicy. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not trying to make a secret. It's, it's, it's actually, it's a blend of those two... Uh, you know, um, liquids just like I described, and it's very refreshing, and uh, it's under five percent. And like I said, you can find them out there in um, twelve ounce cans and sixteen ounce cans. And it's one of the things that I think Narragansett's really uh, put a splash on. Don't be afraid; they're they're pretty much available everywhere. And um, enjoy enjoy that as part of your summer. Well, in a, in a previous episode, we we interviewed Mark Hellendrung, yeah, the, uh, the owner of Narragansett. You had to check that out. And he and it was one of my favorite uh, curveball questions when I asked him what what <laughs> books were on his nightstand. Yeah. I'm not going to spill it. I don't want to tell you what it is, uh, but you got to go back and listen to that because we like to throw random questions at our guests. And uh, and and he, I was not expecting his answer. <laughs> and, and just it just you know not for nothing, it just surprised me. We're all neighbors. Uh, when it's all said and done. Oh, I open mine now. Another one. Ooh, Joel's Joel's licking his lips over there. Our audio engineer. Welcome back, Joel. I like the color of that one. This is uh this is uh from another uh brewery that we've interviewed previously in New England. Uh, in New England, yeah, that we had um Dennis Fitzgibbons and Chris Bonacci on the show uh, from Mass Bay Brewing. Uh, this is a brand new one from under their UFO brand. Uh, called Pink Lemonade Shandy. Oh, we get a little theme going on. It's a freshly squeezed flavor of summer citrus. Again, 4.4%. This one's uh, coming out of a 12-ounce glass bottle. Ryan's over here stealing some cans. 
Hey, Ryan, come on now. <laughs> We're not done with that one. UFO is uh, unfiltered options, by the way. Offerings. Offerings. Yes. And um, it's, so it's a cloudy. We've got a, we've got a wheat beer base um, mixing in the, the classic pink lemonade. And, and, and I asked them, I said, what, what, what's pink about lemons? <laughs> and they said, shut up. <laughs> you remember pink lemonade it's kind of like jason when you had blue raspberry you know why is it blue i don't know it just is Natural. it's just it's just delicious the thing about pink lemonade is it goes with everybody's summer and it's another one that you it's under five percent uh mm-hmm. these are going to be crushable one of the things i like about mass bay and, and the ufo brand is if it doesn't work they fix it and uh, their innovation is second to none. And mm-hmm. uh, so to come out with something brand new for the summer in the form of uh, especially uh, a pink lemonade fashion, uh, very, very uh, fresh and uh, refreshing. Yeah. You, uh, at UFO Beers, uh, if you haven't noticed, they've been, we talk a lot about marketing and branding, Jason. Uh, UFO and Harpoon brands are, are getting separated, uh, which I think, you know, they have different consumer bases and we, and we talked a little bit about that on the show previously but yeah. uh, check out their new at ufo beers uh and the other thing i want to say about this is that it's got a nice little bit of acidity you picked that yeah for sure it's got a little bit of a zing to it it reminds me a lot of the ufo raspberry that i love i love ufo raspberry um and i don't want to i don't want to squeeze anything too tight to that but one Ooh, of the things that i like about, <laughs> one of the things that i like about the ufo beers is that wheat base uh gives it a nice soft mouth feel so um whatever they're whatever they're flavoring with in this case the pink lemonade i mean it it, it balances out really really nice so you have another you have another uh, beer over there we normally do we have two, one more yeah one more you're kidding no i'm not kidding so this one here um Ooh, that one and we've good. uh we've talked about this this brand before this is this is called um uh halyard uh volcano juice Halyard uh, Volcano Juice. So, so Halyard tell is, me about that. That's uh, it's one of the local brands uh, here in uh, Vermont, specifically South Burlington, Vermont, and they are specializing in alcoholic ginger beer, um, all fair trade organic ingredients. But one of the things that's really cool and that we're completing this theme with is they just released Volcano Juice, which is a ginger beer shandy, and um, perhaps the first of its kind. Perhaps I don't, and, I don't um, know. I've never. I don't dive too deep into that. Maybe I'll we'll have to ask Kenny. I'm a huge ginger beer fan. Yeah. Um, I like the spice of it, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a great mixer. Yep. Um, and and uh, before Kenny, I, I don't know if I've ever had so many ginger beers, alcoholic ginger beers, straight up, if you will. But um, what he's doing with alcoholic ginger beers is fantastic. I've had uh, True, which is the uh, that kind of straight and arrow, um, and then I've had the Nicole's, which is a little extra spicier. And now this volcano juice going into the summer is just something that you're going to want to get your hands on. It's got a cool looking can. It's a 12 ounce can, orange label, and uh, and proceeds from the sale of this are going to Healing Winds Vermont, uh, which uh, helps those affected by cancer. So it's got a it's got a nice social mission to it. Actually, you know what, Jason? This this kind of is a nice little segue into the interview that's about to happen. There's an uh, interview. There's an interview. I know you I got to get out of here. I know you got to catch that flight. <laughs> Jason's going to Acapulco. <laughs> um, but we're going to I'm going to have Kenny on and uh, and a special guest uh, Professor Tyler Doggett from uh, UVM. We're going to oh. talk about um, social ethics and and uh, and how that relates to beer. And it's it's going to be a little bit of a different uh, interview than we normally do. Um, 
but I think I think it'll be a really fascinating conversation. So you know that my background is in philosophy, um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of brewers uh, and a lot of people in the brewing industry and the alcohol industry in general uh, who have who have a philosophical background for sure. Um, whether or not they went to school for it or they're just thinkers. Yes, I always thought everything in moderation was was a philosophical. <laughs> you better catch your flight <laughs> to, to, to fantasy island got it yeah let's close the door on the fridge here comes kenny pierre hadeau daniel c dennett susan blackmore heidegger nietzsche william james not to be confused with henry james wittgenstein pascal Owen Flanagan, Professor John Salas, Plato, Derek Parfit, Judith Jarvis Thompson, David Lewis, Saul Kripke, G.E.M. Manscombe, Philip Afoot, Descartes, Princess Elizabeth, Nietzsche, Karl Marx, <laughs> Elizabeth Gross, Spinoza. Jane Bennett, George Bataille, Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze, Felix Guattari. So we are in this uh, beautiful industrial setting uh, currently, so you might hear some construction in the background. They are literally demolishing a shopping mall uh, directly next to where we're recording, which I think is really apropos of the discussion that we're going to start uh, today. Uh, I'm joined by a couple uh, very intelligent guests uh, who also are fans of, of beer and brewing and, uh, and bring some really interesting insight. And we're going to do something a little different today on the podcast, as I mentioned earlier. And, uh, well, I, you know, I'm just going to let these gentlemen introduce themselves. So uh, why don't we start with you? My name is Tyler Doggett. I teach philosophy at the University of Vermont, and I work on ethics mostly and the philosophy of mind. That sounds great. And, uh, and you, sir? My name is Kenny Richards, and I am the owner and founder of Halyard Brewing Company. I'm also a PhD candidate in religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill. All right. And you heard my background earlier. Uh, so we're just going to dive right into the deep end of the pool here, and we're going to discuss ways that, um, well, I guess I should say the deep end of the fermenter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say cool ship, but there's not a deep end of a cool ship. <laughs> uh, and we're just going to find the ways that, that philosophy and beer intersect uh, you, if you've been uh, um, following the free press and my work for a while, you know that back in 2015 I wrote an article. Um, I was reading a book uh, by uh, Eugene Thacker called In the Dust of This Planet and uh, drinking a beer called Space Juice, and that was the irony was not lost on me at that moment, and it got me really thinking about um, a bunch of things. But since then, uh, I've connected with these two gentlemen, and uh, we've had some great discussions over a few, a few pops. Yeah, for uh, sure. Speaking of... We'll just get right into it, because this is the beer talking, after all. Uh, cracking open one of Kenny's uh, volcano juices. Uh, so, so Kenny, I know that you, you have a big focus on um, you know, uh, uh, the, wor the workers, right? You, you've thought a lot about the, uh, the, the workers' rights and, and ethics, and I know, Tyler, you've got a lot of ethics background. So, yep. um, you know, uh, we, were, <laughs> we were chatting in the green room earlier about uh, the boozy bourgeois, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about these days? Yeah, I was uh, 
I think it's really one of the little awesome little pieces of history that I love is that in the middle of the 18th century, tea in England went from being something that was only drank by the wealthy and the elite to being something that all most people drank, the working class in England. Um, prior to this time, most people in England started their day with a beer, right? They had beer at breakfast, oh. beer. Well, kind of like we are right now. Right? Yeah, kind of. Right? <laughs> beer at midday, beer in the evening, beer all day long. And, um, and, and then tea comes, on, tea comes on board. And you know what happened next? The Industrial Revolution. Like that's that coincided that moment in time in which the working class in England stopped drinking beer for breakfast and started drinking caffeine. We find the Industrial Revolution. That's Kenny, do you have a feel for whether what was going on was the tea hopped all these workers up and that led to super productivity or whether what happened was all of a sudden these workers needed to be so much more productive. And they were like, well, I guess beer for the breakfast isn't going to do it. So they switched over to tea. That might be a chicken and the egg kind of question. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like to say that it was, you know, the capitalists were like, we need to get our workers right. more active. Let's feed right. them caffeine for breakfast. Yeah, like this stuff sure. makes us feel really good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. It, so was this, this tea was coming in from, from China. the Far East. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. So this is, there's also steeped, if you will, <laughs> pardon oh. the pun, uh, steeped in you know, colonialism and, and, and that sort of thing, too. Yeah, and, and what's so interesting about the tea, like, like this, this tea and work here, and, you know, the, the revolution is that, industrial revolution is that beer was and has been for a super long time a working class beverage. Right. 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 It was consumed by the working class, you know, and then, and then even in the, in the industrial revolution, it was you had tea for breakfast to help get you going, and then you had beer at the end of the day to help you forget conditions of your labor right Right. so you could get up and do it again the next day well that's like uh you know saison and farmhouse brewing in in belgium and france you know far before this uh but you know the the original saisons uh were you know that means season of course and uh it was they they were brewed for the saisonnier the the farm workers so at the end of the day when you're out in the field you know you you come back to the farmhouse and the farmer hands you a big old ladle full of (laughs) you know (laughs) frothy moderately strong beer and oh, uh, yeah. and you kind of like oh yeah that wasn't so bad <laughs> you know <laughs> plus you know the the uh vitamins and, and all the stuff that they didn't know about at the time kind of re right helped revitalize people but it sounds amazing yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh and you know beer remained uh central to the working class um and I, and i'm not a beer historian so i'm just gonna go out and say this but it, i would bet that beer had remained a part of the working class up until very recently um, and looking yeah. at the craft beer revolution in the US. Well, yeah. that's an interesting point. And uh, you know that the craft beer boom in the US really coincides with the acceleration of what's called post-industrial capitalism. All right, you're uh, going to have to explain that a little bit. Yeah, so, <laughs> so what that means is uh, the main source of the, the main like labor source, what most people are doing every day uh, is no longer manufacturing based, but is service based. Right, so right. as manufacturing gets shipped overseas, uh, more and more workers in the U.S. are uh, turning to service as their main form of labor. Um, what happens in a post-industrial society is uh, what becomes most valued is knowledge. Right, that your right. access and control of knowledge becomes the most valuable thing you can you can present yourself with. Um, and the the kind of the the group that most identified with this new like valuation uh, were young urban professionals. 
I mean, think about mm-hmm. it. everybody has to have a college degree today, right? That's right. part of this like growth well, towards yeah, the evaluation like of knowledge. Yeah. yeah, like everybody, quote unquote, has to have a college degree, right? Like, yeah, it's an expectation that you used to have to finish high school, right, yeah. or or trade school, right? And because we're a post-industrial society, right, we we yeah. have to have that education. And I think demographically, it's super interesting that if I were to say. Hey Jeff, will you describe to me what like like can you give me a stereotype of what yeah. the craft beer aficionado looks like? Right. I think I think we would all just point at me, right? <laughs> it's big beard, yeah, overweight. No. You know, <laughs> like um, right. actually I'd like to hear Tyler describe the the, the archetypal well, definitely craft the, beard the nerd. beard for the beard for yeah, I mean you you do look like one. You got the beard for sure. Uh, probably pretty tall. You got a button-down shirt on. Oftentimes flannel. Maybe you have some hipster glasses on. Ooh, hipster. Thick lent, thick frames. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think that about that about does it. That's what you see and, bars around town. And I would, I'd like to just point out, and that this is not a criticism, but I, we're everybody at this table just described a, a male or someone who's yeah. identifying as right. male. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that that women don't uh, aren't part of the beer movement but that's interesting that we all kind of went to the the male archetype um i was just reading an article the other day about uh it's a really fascinating piece i can't remember the woman's name but we'll post a link in uh on social media but she was uh it was, a, it was an open letter to the to the men in the beer aisle who are trying to like help her <laughs> find a fruity right. beer and you know she's basically taking them to task which <laughs> that was a really awesome uh thing and then um Anyway, I didn't want to derail the conversation. No, I mean, I, th- I think, like I think the, it's worth noting. I think like the stereotype, like kind of ironically, is this like working class nostalgia, yeah. right? Where like right. every everybody right. in the beer snob community wants to look like they worked on a Vermont farm. Yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> right. At some or, point in their life, or the yeah. button-up dicky, right. like that they have yeah. a you know yeah. hands-on job, but yeah. really they're sitting behind a computer making some technology some thing widget. that I don't know what it is. Yeah, <laughs> some app. An app, yeah, <laughs> a digital widget. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, and and follow me here. So, if post-industrialization leads to this increased value of knowledge, um, can you see how like the access and attainment of a specialized form of knowledge about certain things can create value for that person, right? right. So, like you, the more you know about something, it kind of builds your prestige, and you can say, "Oh, I, I know a lot about this," and and it. And it helps you can right. represent or, or show off that you're like the most educated, right. knowledgeable right. person yeah. uh, dressed like a, a working class individual. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there's a there's another kind of uh, piece that I just thought of while you were talking about, like like beer uh, and being knowledgeable about beer is like an affordable luxury. Yep. Right. So you've got oh, yeah. the you got the working class uh, people. They can learn all about it, feel really good about it and afford to buy it. You know, like we, we've talked in the past about like the most expensive beer this well this was a few years ago i don't know (laughs) what the most expensive beer is today but the most expensive beer you can go into a shop and find most people could afford to buy it whereas like if you're in the wine world right forget it you know i i can't even tell you how expensive they get thousands and thousands for yeah you know 25 ounces yeah i was stunned i was i had to buy a bottle of champagne for a friend and I i don't drink champagne and i couldn't i was buying I wanted something nice and they showed me the nice stuff. And yeah, like you're saying, Jeff, it was maybe three times as expensive as even like a pretty nice bottle of beer that you would find at the beverage warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. So like what's, I mean, this is a super interesting. What's going, I mean, granted, 
75% of the people who, the beer consumed by volume in this country is not craft beer. Right. right. Well, maybe right. more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in Vermont where it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> most of the beer consumed is craft beer. But, right. But, the, but, you know, out in uh, our listeners in Utah might be having a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. But for the craft beer community, like, what's going on here? We have this massive proliferation of styles. We have in growing prices. Yeah. You know, four packs for $20. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, and if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Right. And, and so, like, the question that I, I think is just super interesting is why does craft beer become this this like example of this post-industrial worker yeah um like what happened there are you are you asking me or am i leading <laughs> am i leading <laughs> i mean two yeah, two really Tyler. interesting yeah. things in what you're saying kenny one is the craft beer movement is giving people a way to show off how much they know and so it's a way you can differentiate yourself from people that like you don't settle for just any beer you strictly drink like vermont ipas and then what even once you get into vermont ipas you can get super nerdy about it and you can like show off that you have some sort of like i don't know like lawson's trillium mm-hmm. one-off ipa and so pow pow sorry right like you can for example show off that you know the name of the lawson's trillium i wasn't showing off i was just <laughs> filling it in <laughs> right. and so it's a way of like differentiating yourself from other people in terms of how much you know, but then there's this other thing, which is you can collect it. You know, and people have all sorts of collections. Mm. Like people used to collect records. I mean, to some extent, people still do collect records. But it's beer actually is just the same people. It's the yeah, right. It's so the beer wonder, is, it, is, it, is it like the same guy who was collecting records then, and now he's collecting like limited edition uh, Vermont beers? No, oh, I meant it's it's the beer collector is collecting vinyl. Oh yeah, no, the, yeah. that's right. When you think about your stereotype of yeah. a guy who collects vinyl, it's like quite similar to yeah. A guy who collects rare rare beers from Vermont. Yeah, and when before there was craft beer, and you like you would try to differentiate yourself from people like what you're like the guy who drinks Bush, you know, like everyone <laughs> else drinks Budweiser, no, but I'm a Bush guy. Like I remember actually the first time I ever saw Rolling Rock, and it really struck me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like so indie. It's like someone yeah. showing me a pavement record. Glass yeah, tanks. Exactly. It was, gr- it was green. <laughs> From right. the glass nine tanks of old Latrobe. We tended right. this premium right. lager. You know, I remember yeah. it was like some like record on like Matador back in the 90s. But th- that was the version of like an indie beer where I grew up in Ohio back well, a long time yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I went to went off to college from Florida to Vermont, I, you know, I was drinking Red Dog and Bush Light and yeah. And Rolling Rock, and I come up here, and people are drinking PBR, and I'm like, what the, right. what is that? Yeah. You know, never, ugh. Don't give me my Rolling Rock, you know? The one thing, like, just keeping going with this, like, one thing that I found interesting about, the, like, the beer boom and beer snobbery is my wife every year has this Halloween party, and we have to get a lot of beer, and I get like, kind of nerdy about it, and I go to the beverage warehouse, and I get all sorts of stuff, and you're like getting something from Bent Hill that's made out of beets. And the stuff that get, goes the quickest by far is Coors. You know, you, like, what the people at the party want, like once you're dressed in a champ costume <laughs> or you know, you're dressed as a mattress, you don't want anything super nerdy. Like the Coors, there's a run on the Coors, and then, like, people end up drinking the beat stuff only at the very end of the party. We're keeping the beat in the background here as they're swinging hammers <laughs> right next to where we're recording. If you're just joining us, uh, we're, we're in a construction zone uh, talking about 
uh, labor and uh, post uh, post industrial capitalism and yep. beer snobbery and beer yeah. snobbery. You know, and and what I what I kind of go like to go to it is what Marx calls commodity fetishism. Mm. Oh um, yeah. You know, just to quote for you here, the commodity reflects the social characteristics of men's own labor. Put men in square quotes there. Thank you, 19th century, uh, as objective characteristics of the products of labor themselves. Like, so what does that mean, right? In other words, you know, the craft beer snob finds in beer a reflection of their own condition of labor, of their own identity. Um, and the prestige that they wish to develop or demonstrate in their arcane knowledge of obscure and unheard of beer styles. Right? Check this out. This is how awesome I am as this like urban young professional who knows a bunch of that beep and, um, and look at this crazy thing that I found that's brewed out of like I don't know dog hairs right? Yeah, like, right, right right it's amazing kind of well it, it's like it's like you know Tyler you brought up music earlier like records and stuff it's like oh you haven't heard of this band right this is the coolest band ever that but only I know about them and then if they make it big then oh geez you know it's like the sellout conversation like yeah they were better they were better in the old days they were better before they had a record label deal you're like okay well <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you know like that's a weird way to wish success on someone right like totally I'm doing great because you, nobody knows who you are and you can't pay your rent <laughs> <laughs> but that benefits me. That's like literally standing on the backs of others, right? Like yeah. In a in more of an intellectual way than social status. When you said fetish, fetishization, 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 <laughs> uh, I, I went right to Instagram culture. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, like. Oh. Or the untapped right. culture. Or untapped, yeah. yeah. Or beer Wait, advocate or, or rape beer or any of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, just, just the uh, showing. It's another way to show off, right? Yeah. Like you're. you're you're posting a picture of some obscure beer that uh, you know you had in, in in Indonesia or something, you know, and it was probably a light lager, but <laughs> nobody else has had it, you know, or the or the stupid and I can't handle the the boss pour or the Iceman pour with the IPAs. You guys know what this is? No, no. So people will pour those like hazy uh, juice bomb IPAs that have no head retention, and they'll pour them right up to the lip of the glass with no head because they can't maintain head and then get that little meniscus going, you know, the surface tension. Yeah. And so it's like as full as the glass can be right before the glass runneth over mm-hmm. <laughs> and people will like post it as if that's cool, but it's literally <laughs> the opposite of what beer, you know, like how you're quote unquote supposed to enjoy something in there. Yeah. And now I just put a red flag in my own head. Like yeah. who am I to tell anybody what to do? But um, you know, like beers in general is supposed to have head, which releases some of the aromatics and it creates a different texture and, and all these things. So I just can't handle the boss pour. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love to go super meta on this because I know all three of us are like, we love this. right? We do right. like we are like yeah. hunting down cool stuff all the time, yeah. like participating in this culture 100 yeah. percent. Um, and it kind of sounds like a critique and maybe kind of a self critique of like the own our own you know, promiscuity that we're participating in. Right. right? Yeah. In this, I mean, we, we literally I mean, my job is marketing right i mean yeah. i'm yeah. selling these beers that you know kenny you're making or whoever and so yeah this is just kind of um i think we, if we look at it like the the self-examined life right like we're you got to keep yourself in check yeah <laughs> I, i've come up with a name uh untapped barons or maybe the barons of untapped what is this untapped thing you guys oh, are talking an, about it's an app where you can oh. uh rate and talk about beer okay yeah you could or what most people do is they just kind of it's like checking in on mm-hmm. facebook okay they just kind of 
ticket that they've had it. And oftentimes people will oh, give it a yeah. out of five rating. Right. But no description on what like or <laughs> my favorite one is uh, best Pilsner I've ever had. Two out of five. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, then you just don't like Pilsner. Like, <laughs> you know, that's not cool. Yeah. And, and and part of this like this post-industrial beer snob is like, how many beers have I checked in? Yeah, right. right. right? That's like, check it out. I've got 5,000 different individual beers that I have checked in on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome that like yeah. that diversity exists in the market and you've done that. Right. Um, but it's also, it represents this, this certain type of consumer that is right. like the dominant consumer in the craft beer industry. It's also, right yeah. it's also gross at like a hedonistic level, right? <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> just, in, just in a certain way, like it's like, oh wow. That's a lot. You know, like the, the non-craft <laughs> consumers, like they might've had 5,000 beers in their life, yeah. but That's they're not like keeping track, day, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And uh, when you said the, the thing about, you know, uh, people gravitating towards uh, light lager, it also made me think of, like, brand loyalty. Oh, yeah. And in this conversation, too, like, um, if you're a consumer, you, you are also, and we're going to get into ethics in a minute here, but you also have an ethical commitment in, in, a, in a social agreement kind of way to your breweries, right? So, like, right. if you really like something and you say you like it and you post it on Instagram and you check it in on Untapped, and then you never buy it again. Right. You're you're doing a great disservice in a way, right? I mean, you're yeah. you're kind of hurting that brewery because then they have to come up with the next and the next and the next. And you mentioned promiscuity at one point, yeah. like we're you know p- there's no brand loyalty. Whereas like you, you used to yeah. be a bushman, yeah, you know, right. right? Right. So as a consumer, like you're not. I, I mean, this is now it sounds like I'm pointing a finger, but like you, us, are are not exempt from the ethical consideration yeah and that's a that's an awesome point and something that i want to ask tyler about because i was you know i love the whole like connection between beer consumption and the working class right and and then different class relationships to it but the question that really like i troubles me and gets me excited but also kind of horrifies me is the you know as also as someone who sells tries to brew beer and sell it is like what constitutes a fad and what's like the kind of the 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 philosophical ground for this right like you know I love the I love the Vermont IPA as an example of what I, where I'm trying to go for this right like it's an I love them they're delicious they're amazing they're unique but yeah. if you were to just hand like a person who's never had a beer before yeah. they would not probably not like it right I mean all all of these factors that constitute what makes a good Vermont IPA yeah. are or they wouldn't recognize it as beer yeah, yeah right. they'd be like well, what I don't it's kind of bitter what is this right and, no that's right and um, our tastes are so culturally constructed yeah. And, you know, the question that I, it's like, here we are, like, waiting in line for hours on a Saturday morning to get one of these beers. And the question, and then you go and you get on a tap and you rate it and you rant and you do all these things. And the question that I have is like, okay, do you, you know, kind of pulling from Nietzsche here is like, do you have the right to that opinion? Not, Mm. not in the sense that like in a liberal tradition where it's like, do you have the freedom of speech? But like, is that your opinion? Are you actually, uh, is it like, you, are you just participating in a fad? Oh, I see. Or do you like, do you actually like it? And, and where do you draw that line there? Are you worried at some level that, it's not that they're being like insincere, they're lying or something. It's more like, that's just the culture speaking through them. Like the right. culture is super into it. But when it comes down to like what the person like, like yeah. truly likes, I mean, the answer might not be Vermont IPA. I mean, the answer might be something totally different. It's just they're part of some culture where part of the culture is being super into these really chewy beers. 
and that's part of their identification and they just talk about it all the time but like whether they like it or not is not super important the role the role it plays in their life is not like the role like cheetos might play <laughs> in this person's life where it's like something really tasty it makes them feel great yeah. to eat them sometimes right. they can always count on cheetos no it's more like you like flag who you are by saying oh i'm like a vermont ipa guy yeah and in the ethics too like like here you are wielding your critique oh, this one's passe, or this one doesn't yeah. have enough juiciness, yeah, right. right? Not like, as like an expression of this cultural moment. Um, but meanwhile, as you wield this critique, you're hurting brewers, you're forgetting right. that there's people behind this, that right. there's like uh, people trying to make a living. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's like a, an ethic to that critique there. And yeah. Well, one thing I thought of while you were talking was, uh, Tyler, was how beer uh, opinions and music opinions, because that seems to be like a common crossover example yeah. like if you if you ask someone today you know like what kind of music do you listen to the answer like the cool the culturally cool answer is oh i listen to everything that's true or i listen yeah, to everything when, except for country right you know what yeah. i mean like that's the one i hear the most yeah. but if you ask yeah, when somebody did that, what, when did yeah. that start right right if you ask somebody what kind of beer they're into they're gonna nail a style they're going to say, oh, I drink Ooh. a lot of IPAs or mm. I don't like hobby beer. I'm a, I, I really love brown ales. Right. There's two people in the country that say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mentioned it on a previous podcast, but there's a brewer I follow on Twitter uh, who said he's like, yeah, it's, people tell me all the time they love brown ales, except they say it while they're drinking an IPA. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Like, um, but I think that's a really interesting kind of flip, though. Right. Like, I, whereas, you know, maybe five years ago or 10 years ago at the kind of the, the in the extreme beer movement yeah. moment you might get the answer like oh well, I drink everything like right. I, I love trying everything right now people will say I love trying all IPAs you know and we oh, that's had really this, interesting off the air we had this yeah. conversation yeah. about um, you know uh, how the IPA has become so homogenous right, right. like it's we're, we're lacking in uh, uh, diversity yeah which is interesting that that's where we ended up but that's that's a whole different discussion um the other Can thing I thought of was free will too, right? Yeah. So like, you're talking about like, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Eyebrows raise on some <laughs> professor of philosophy. From, <laughs> from, but you know, do you have the right to uh, to to have that opinion? Is it your opinion? And also, you know, made me think of like, do you have free will, or are you just a product of, you know, society? And that's like a whole separate uh, podcast. Yeah, that escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Well, I, nobody said the M word yet. Well. Y- you know what I'm getting at? No. The I'm M nervous. word? Meaning? Oh. No, nobody <laughs> said meaning yet, so that's really like oh, up yeah. in the answer. Well, actually, so I've, um, I just wanted to just follow up on the point you just made a minute ago, Jeff, and ask Kenny. So can you make ginger beer? And like that's all the beers you make are ginger beers. Can, like, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that decision to like, just pursue this one like kind of narrow style of beer and you have you have all sorts of variations like we're drinking volcano juice right now which is a ginger beer shandy and there are other ginger beers you make but all your beers are ginger beer and you just go like super deep into that style yeah i'm trying to revive a a category a lost category from from u.s history um that was brewed was lost in prohibition and uh i'm you know it's this product that most people have forgotten about and i'm trying to to revive it um, but that doesn't like exempt me from the only reason that it works is because of massive consumer promiscuity 
because of this like moment in craft beer in which uh, people are willing to try something totally new and something totally different. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, that's interesting too, because it's a very uh, uh, academic kind of philosophical approach too, right? Like you, you found something that has value. Yeah. In quotes value <laughs> lowercase v uh in in history and you're you're breathing f- new life yeah. into it yeah. you know whereas like that's tyler i feel like you know you, you probably do that daily in in your classes right like you're taking these historical <laughs> right. yeah. these documents super old ideas and that and some are you know really esoteric like yeah. you know those the list of philosophers that we rattled off earlier like yeah. you know I, I didn't even know some of the ones that you two said yeah so the you know the average um not average the the, the 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 any person on the street might you know these are ideas that they might not have heard of yeah or they they know them but they don't know why they know them right which is back to your point about do you have the is it your opinion right like yeah. it's just the culture kind of breathes into it yeah i mean when i i remember first reading spinoza and kind of having this like freak out existential moment being like hmm. wait a minute like all of these things that i believe constitute kenny and my desires might not like, yeah, they just come, they've like, but they're there before me. Yeah, I know. I remember that one too. (laughs) (laughs) And then where do you go from there? You're just like, well, uh, F it. (laughs) I like being in culture. (laughs) When you said Spinoza, I instinctively went, (laughs) internal, like existential ennui. Um, But I had a similar moment reading uh, uh, Emerson, his divinity school address where, you know, he's listening to the, preacher rattle on and as some people are listening to us rattle on like and, and ryan's kind of yeah. looking at me like what is where is this going you know like, <laughs> i know i know ryan's been good this time he hasn't stolen any cans either it's no. weird you know, <laughs> but you know he's looking out the window watching the snowflakes fall and you know and he's like what am i doing in here not ryan emerson <laughs> yeah but ryan is also doing that actually we're watching the mall fall out the window but you know i i remember i, I had this moment where i took the book and I literally like threw it in the trash, like not to be disrespectful oh to Emerson, but like to, to embrace it. Like, and I just went outside. I left class. You yeah. know, that was it. Yeah. Wait, you were and in I, class? Yeah, I was in you class. Stood up, threw the book out and walked out. Yep. Hey, and Jeff. then I came back in and, you know, explained my, <laughs> 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 I felt the need to explain my art to you, Warren. It's yeah. <laughs> a really obscure reference that some people probably got. Uh, but Tyler, let's, let's dive into ethics here. Um, sure. Because, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of ethical concerns about brewing. We touched on you know, consumerism ethics, but yep. I think the brewers have a lot of ethical baggage to deal with, right? Yeah, and the production of food uh, in general, food and drink, uh, raises all sorts of ethical issues. Some are environmental, like you think about hermit thrush down in Brattleboro, and they even have blurbs on their cans about their environmental footprint and what they're working towards. Uh, environmentally, I mean, their slogan is "Get beer off oil." Mm. Other batch issues is uh, how you're treating your workers. This came up a little bit with Kenny already, but it would be great to hear more about that. And food labor issues are really important in Vermont, not just in the brewing industry, of course, in the dairy industry. The treatment of people who pick um, lettuces or uh, cucumbers for us is a big issue. Um, one of the big food ethical issues has to do with the treatment of animals, and actually I have no idea about what role animals play in the production of beer. I mean, are animals important, Kenny? Uh, yeast? Can we 
Call yeast oh. part of the animal kingdom, yeast. right? Are we exploiting a billion creatures? <laughs> every trillion Ooh. creatures every time we brew? Yeah. You know, and, bef- and before <laughs> Pasteur, we didn't even know about yeast, but you know, like yeast, uh, the, even the, t- the term, and this is here we can dive into, you know, uh, just dip our toe into uh, religious uh, connotations, but the, the word comes from God is good. Really? Wait, what? Like the, the word yeast like is based on God is good. So like really? it just <laughs> before that. Pasteur, I know I don't want to get too far into this, but before Pasteur, like beer just happened. Like they knew that if they did like yeah, certain right. things, like God would come down and, and dip his, you know, pinky toe in it and I it see. would, you know, turn into this elixir. Um I'm hoping that God washed his feet first. <laughs> or oh, her feet. No, or no, her no, feet. No. You gotta have him funky, man. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> But so, yeah, I think exploitation of, of, you know, like, what what do the vegans think about this? So, yeah, I mean, there is this real issue that I think initially started off as a sort of fringe thing that people who were mad at vegans would say to vegans, which is something like, oh, if you care so much about living things, how come you're, like, so into eating plants? Plants are living things, too. And so... You're participating in some kind of like mass destruction of broccoli and kale. <laughs> how many like, vegetables had to die for your salad? How, exactly. Like, yeah. Right. So like, right. Omnivores really care a lot about the well-being of carrots when they're dealing with yeah. vegans. And then, so that used to be just something people said to be nasty if they were like fed up with vegans. But I think people are starting to take like more seriously the idea that like, plants have ways of flourishing. I mean, I think some people think now like plants have mental lives and if that's right, then this might have like serious ethical implications. And then you can go like, if you think plants have mental life, then you absolutely might think bacteria do too. You might think all living things do, in which case, yeah, the production of like the production destruction of bacteria and yeast um, might raise really disturbing ethical issues. Yeah, there's there's like a, a really cool growing nascent branch of philosophy called the philosophy of plants. Yeah, right. That like looks at plant life yep. as like a model for philosophical thinking. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, no, that's and that's one of those areas of philosophy that yeah. bridges both the, the sort of philosophy that you work on, Kenny, and the sort that I do. Well, besides, you know, uh, like animal ethics, if you will, like just to kind of like. You know, ecological ethics like what about ingredient shipping yeah yeah i mean that definitely goes into the environmental uh calculus when you think about the effects on the environment yeah one of the big effects is how food is grown and then a smaller effect but still an effect is how it's moved from one place to the other like where do you get your ingredients from kenny yeah so i mean we use organic and fair trade ingredients Uh, we do participate in environmental ethic but however Ginger doesn't grow in yeah, Vermont. Right. Well, it does, but it's it's. it's yeah. I can't afford it. Oh, um, yeah. And it's only young ginger because it'll die every winter. So ginger right. is a perennial rhizome, um, and so it comes from Peru. Okay. Yeah, which has a pretty big carbon footprint, even though it comes on a ship and yep. then a truck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well it's that, like the curb, presumably the environmental impact of growing it in Peru and shipping it to you is much less than the environmental impact of trying to grow all that stuff in Vermont. And the transport you'd cut down on transportation costs a lot if you grew it in Vermont, but the environmental costs of trying to grow that stuff and heat a greenhouse all exa- winter long, yeah, exactly, right, right. might be a disaster. And so, environmentally speaking, and so do I have an ethical obligation? And I think, but I think, like you know, I, I like, oh yeah, so this is there is a an impact, yeah. an environmental impact to my my brewing of this product, right? Um, that I try to mitigate by using like 
environmentally friendly cleaners at the brewery and biodegradable yep. things and, and, and cans, even though aluminum is, is nastily mined, it's also infinitely recyclable. Yep. Right. Um, right. And this kind of like ethical balance between all of my sins and all of the things that I'm trying right. to do. Right. Right. Well, back to your point about vegans, right? Where we, we, we all make fun of vegans. Sorry, vegans. <laughs> but I don't uh, make fun of vegans. Oh, okay. All right. I, I misspoke. <laughs> Um, but we, you know, we do have, we have the tendency to go down the rabbit hole and like pull the thread and be like, well, if you have a conviction about one thing, yeah. then why aren't you a monk? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, All right. why aren't you a Buddhist monk? Like right. you can't, you know, we, we, are still, you know, being in the world, right? Like we yeah. are, we have to mitigate. I think you use the phrase that we're, we're just trying to, we're always trying to offset yeah. our sins. But there's also the, the thing about like shipping product, right? I mean, shipping ingredients is one thing, but shipping, you know, heavy cans and bottles and things, right. you know, or, or like I think of the wine world with like Beaujolais Nouveau, where they put it on an airplane right. to get it to the U.S. Like, oh, my God, like what <laughs> fetishism yeah. like yeah. about this product to get it before Thanksgiving so we can have it on Thanksgiving and then forget about it for the rest of the year. <laughs> you know, it expires the day after Thanksgiving. Like, yeah. um, but, you know, th- and then on top of that, shipping empties so like every time you get a keg from you know a steel keg comes from europe yeah that steel keg goes somewhere right yeah it's probably back to europe yeah. it takes up just as much space when it's mm-hmm. empty as it does when it's full so it's you know it's a it's a, a full you know it starts gets me thinking about cradle to cradle and that kind of whole you know like how do we yeah how do we close the loop wait what's cradle to cradle uh it's a it's a business um practice kind of like philosophy of of like you as a producer are responsible from the moment of uh you know production yep. through the life cycle of of your product so okay. f- so if you manufacture soap is like one of the easiest examples i think yep. so you make soap and then you put it in a in a in a pet bottle yep okay so now you you your soap and your pet bottle have to go somewhere right so the soap goes down the drain yep so what is the impact of the soap through the through the uh, you know water system? Yeah. Okay. And then you know what what is required to clean it out mm-hmm. of the water yeah. and the other end, and then also what happens to your bottle? So is your bottle completely recyclable? Is it biodegradable? So like the the concept is like you are the steward from cradle to cradle instead of cradle to grave, right? Like it. you're it's supposed to be a oh, nice a recycling thing. Yeah, I got it. Um, uh, Joel handed me a note here, and it says, "Deconstruction." Oh yeah. <laughs> While there is construction While there going is on, deconstruction <laughs> happening behind us. Oh man, uh, <laughs> we're taking questions from the audience. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have Joel back. Thanks, buddy. Um, yeah, deconstructionism I mean, as a ca- whole. We are kind of doing through a deconstructive process in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um, I know, and I, I, one of the things that's great about beer snobbery is that, it, and promiscuity, is that it has allowed for the proliferation of local breweries. Yeah, right. And right. Um, they might not all source locally; some of them do, um, but it it keeps flows of capital localized. Yeah. Um, it helps keep the community production within that area. It can foster a greater environmental responsibility because breweries have to be actually, you know, responsible to their community yeah. in a way that the big foreign brewery isn't. Shipping is less, yep. right? So it's a, it's a really cool thing, you know, and uh, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have if you have people who are coming at it thoughtfully yeah. and aren't interested in endless growth, you know, right. yeah, I think so. Like there are some breweries that 
um, you know, they're, they just want to serve the community and they don't yeah. want to go any further. They make them, you know, make income for themselves and their family. They get to support other people's families, support the community. That's great. But that's not, you know, for the past 20 years, that's not what we see. You know, Green yeah. Flash is a, is a prime example of overreach, right? I mean, they went from being in all 50 states, having working on their third brewery, acquiring another brewery, and within, a f- you know, I was at the beginning of the year, or they had acquired another brewery, and now we're sitting here in early May, and they're in eight states, mm-hmm. uh, have been foreclosed upon, sold one of their breweries, canceled the, the third one, and uh, the bank just sold them to somebody. Oh. So, like, the endless growth model is definitely not uh, great, but I also thought of something else, Tanya, where you're talking about, like, the proliferation of local breweries, like, there's another concept happening in, in the beer world called, uh, they, they phrase it, pass the sticks. Yeah. So, like, as one brewery dies, another brewery comes in. Yeah. So it's like, all right, your turn. Right. Like, you're going to do any better? Uh, which makes me think of, you know, chaos theory. And, you know, a child is born, and <laughs> it lives, it dies. You know, like, this is another, another <laughs> Tyler's, like, wincing. <laughs> you know, people people from my, uh, you know, from my, my academic friends, right, and philosopher friends are like, Kenny, so, like, what's your big philosophical takeaway from being a capitalist now? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, uh, Weber was right. <laughs> right. Like Protestant ethic is real. You have to yeah. exploit the shit out of yourself. Excuse me, crowd for cussing yeah. again. Um, and you have to, you have to exploit yourself. You have to exploit your labors. You have to exploit everything around you because that's like, that's, it's real. And it's like this torment, right. Yeah. As a, as someone who knows that that's going on, like reveling in growth and excitement around people liking your product and getting behind your brand, but also being like, okay, (laughs) here we go again. You know, I'm not paying myself again. And, um, you know, you talk to a lot of brewers, especially small brewers and like, Hey, how much, how much you you like it? Like, I love brewing. How much money are you making? Mm, Right. Right? And, uh, there's this like super Protestant ethic that's involved in, in brewing. Has brewing given you other philosophical ideas? Oh, As the world turns. As the world mm-hmm. turns. Yeah. <laughs> Kenny <laughs> Tings. Yeah. Uh, I love thinking about yeast. Yeah. I love thinking about trillions of organisms, like, s- growing, and I'm caring for them. And You're they're playing like, God, huh? Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> and, and, and in a way, they're like, it's my, I'm a, I like to keep, you know, I'm the keeper of a billion organisms. Yeah, right. Right. And I, and I feed them, mm-hmm. and then they produce something for me. Yeah. Right. You feel like you have a responsibility to these, like, tiny non-sentient creatures responsibility might not be another right. word the but flip it. side is, yeah, is exploitation maybe. of the of yeah. the laborers man you're putting <laughs> yeah. those yeast, you're feeding them <laughs> yeah. just enough to keep them happy to go back out there you for know you. what if you if right. after a few generations if you start making off flavors you're going down the drain right. that's right children yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're uh, as uh, as as you're we, we're gonna wrap up here a little bit because i'm sure we've lost oh. about 20 listeners uh, in the last five minutes but um, I wanted to, uh, as we were talking about, um, uh, you know, Kenny, I think you, you, you really hit home on this idea that I, I like to call postmodern anxiety or like existential ennui, like <laughs> what am I doing? So let's, let's take a moment and stare into the abyss, shall we? Mm. That sounds good. And for the, for the oh, uh, thanks, informed listener or, or perhaps the collector, you might get the reference to Deschutes, The Abyss. This is a uh, 20, let's see, 2015 Abyss Reserve, uh, and it's brewed with, well, 
just about everything actually yeah. blackstrap mm. molasses licorice mm. cherry bark vanilla aged in oak bourbon barrels some other oak barrels some mm. wine barrels and uh as we as we wrap up our conversation here i thought it would be remiss if we didn't stare into the abyss We might have to we might have to have that conversation after mm-hmm. because we didn't even get to like the the platonic ideal of like what is a beer and like oh, yeah. the the conversation about styles you know creativity. We got and, to that and, a little bit though. I think about the ingredients of the abyss and like that's not gonna be right. Like to guys who just like drinking bush, I mean that's like it's a parody of, of beer. Right. Is, is it, I mean, how An amazingly even, delicious. Yeah, parody. it is amazingly delicious. <laughs> right. But like, yeah, how can this even be the same kind of thing as Coors Light? Or how your ginger beer, for that matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. completely different. So I want to thank you very much, uh, gentlemen, Kenny Richards from Halyard Brewing uh, and, and Tyler Doggett from uh, UVM, <laughs> Professor oh, of Jeff. Philosophy. Thanks so much for having yeah, us. Thanks, and uh, awesome. thanks to our listeners who stuck with us. Can we go to our and classes? Yeah, and I think we're going we're gonna to audit. or uh, Audit? No, what is it called? Yeah, auditing is uh, good. Uh, yeah, we're going to audit one of uh, Tyler's classes. Yeah, feel free to audit. I'm yeah. teaching a class about food. And then all next week, awesome. we're having this week of public philosophical events including something that Kenny's going to do at Halyard, I hope. It starts on Sunday, April 29th, and it finishes on Saturday, May 5th. We have a Facebook page, Public Philosophy Week. Check it out. Yep, so you can go to different talks on a a variety of different subjects. If you liked what you heard here, uh, please check it out, Public Philosophy Week on Facebook. Uh, There's a whole bunch of events if you're in the the Burlington, Chittenden County area, uh, and uh, you can learn more there. So... Again, gentlemen, thank you. And uh, thank you. I think uh, awesome. I think we should just dive into the abyss, huh? <laughs> Head first. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, Jason and I want to thank you for listening to It's the Beer Talking, a Burlington Free Press production in collaboration with Feral Distributing. Our producers today were Abby Silic and Ryan Chapin. To subscribe to our show, head on over to iTunes and search It's the Beer Talking. And while you're there, why not give us a review? Got a question for us or a topic that you think we should cover? Cruise on over to social media and find us with the username The Beer Talking. We know we forgot the G, and that was intentional. Yeah.